0: You're listening to Quantum Harry the Podcast, a podcast version of the book Quantum Harry, A Unified Theory of the Potterverse, by B. L. Purdom. Episode 31, The Devil You Know. This is the beginning of a two-episode arc about tarot imagery and symbolism in Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. Last time I began talking about J.K. Rowling's use in the Harry Potter series of symbolism from the tarot Major Arcana, as well as a very abbreviated history of the tarot, including the fact that the tarot began as playing cards for a variety of games, as well as storytelling. If you missed episode 30, you should go back. Anytime you want to listen or re-listen to any episode, just go to the Quantum Harry Twitter page, at QHPodcast, and click on the link in the pinned tweet to go to the Quantum Harry episode guide, which has links to all of the episodes in audio and video formats, plus links to blog posts related to some of the episodes. Way back in episodes 2 through 9 of Quantum Harry, the podcast, I examined seven mythic archetypes in tandem with the seven Harry Potter books, one archetype ruling each of the seven books. These archetypes are further illuminated in the following ten episodes, especially the reason for the order in which these archetypes rule the books in the series. It's all linked to the first seven cards of the Tarot Major Arcana. Let's begin with a quote from Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. I think everyone listening will know who's being described. He was tall, thin, and very old, judging by the silver of his hair and beard, which were both long enough to tuck into his belt. He was wearing long robes, a purple cloak that swept the ground, and high-heeled buckled boots. His blue eyes were light, bright, and sparkling behind half-moon spectacles, and his nose was very long and crooked. As though it had been broken at least twice. As I already said, this is the first of a two-episode arc looking at tarot symbolism in Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. In this episode, I'll examine what I call the column cards for this book. Remember that grid of 21 cards from the last episode? With cards 1 through 7 in the first row, 8 through 14 in the second, and 15 through 21 in the third? Well, when we look at each vertical column in this grid of cards, we can apply the symbolism of the cards in each column to each of the Harry Potter books. The first column of Tarot Major Arcana cards aligns with the first Harry Potter book. This gives us the magician, card number 1, at the top. Justice, card number 8, in the middle of the column, and the Devil, card number 15, at the bottom of the column. For people who are very familiar with tarot decks, let me say now that the Waite Smith deck swapped the Justice and Strength cards, number 8 and number 11, back in 1909, in order to better align the cards with Kabbalistic symbolism. But since that's not my purpose here, and it doesn't seem to be J.K. Rowling's purpose, I'm keeping Justice in the eighth position in Quantum Harry, which matches the much older Marseille tarot deck. The first card at the top of the first column, The Magician, is the tarot equivalent of the archetype of the wise old man, the ruling archetype for the first book in the series, and the subject of Quantum Harry the Podcast, Episode 2, This Old Man. The Magician is traditionally depicted with various accoutrements of wizardry, In many decks, he holds a wand over his head, and items that appear on a table before him or elsewhere on the card may include a sword, a cup, and a large disc or a coin with a five-pointed star on it, called a pentacle. These are, of course, the suits of the 56 cards in the Tarot Minor Arcana, wands, swords, cups, and either discs, pentacles, or coins, depending on what term you prefer. And again, the suit cards of the Minor Arcana are numbered 1 through 10, followed by the court cards, Page, Knight, Queen, and King, making 14 in each suit, unlike the 13 in modern decks of playing cards. Each tarot suit corresponds to one of the four traditional elements, earth, air, fire, and water. So the magician on the first card is effectively ruling over these items, which positions him as the master of fire, or wands, air, or swords, water, or cups, and earth, or discs, or pentacles, or coins. These, of course, have become the playing card suits that we know today. Wands became clubs, swords became spades, cups became hearts, and pentacles became diamonds. In episode 18, The Wide World, I talked about Rowling aligning the traditional four elements of fire, air, water, and earth with her Hogwarts houses slightly differently than these symbols are aligned with the elements in the tarot major and minor arcana, but she's consistent in the way that she changes these alignments, which is probably because she thinks it works better in her story rather than because she's ignorant of the traditional alignments, which is just unlikely. So this is an instance where I think her story requirements did actually take the lead in determining her use of symbolism, rather than the other way around. Thus, even though Gryffindor is clearly aligned with the element of fire, which we see in the first task of the Triwizard Tournament, the one involving fire-breathing dragons, because she also gives a sword to Godric Gryffindor, the sword is that house's tarot suit, effectively, not wands, even though the element linked to the suit of swords is air, not fire. Similarly, wands are the tarot suit that aligns with Ravenclaw, even though its element is air. The visitors from the pseudo-Ravenclaw school in the fourth book, the French school Beaubaton, arrive at Hogwarts by flying through the air. Beauxbatons even has baton, B-A-T-O-N, meaning wand, in its name, and crossed wands for its emblem. In the Harry Potter books, wands are pretty much associated with everyone, especially Harry, with his Phoenix Feather Wand, and later his Mastery of the Elder Wand, but swords are never associated with Ravenclaw in the seven-book series. The Ravenclaw Horcrux, Rowena Ravenclaw's diadem, isn't even destroyed by the Sword of Gryffindor, or by a stand-in for the sword, a basilisk fang. Instead, it's destroyed by fire, specifically fiend fire. In J.K. Rowling's world, she seems to have decided that swords are aligned with the element of fire and wands with the element of air, not the other way around. The Hufflepuff Horcrux is a cup, which should technically go to the house with water for its element, but in the Potterverse, it goes to the one that's aligned with the element of earth. On the other hand, Slytherin, whose element is water, should have the cup for its tarot suit, but instead it has the pentacle, or coin, and in fact the lock at horcrux looks like a big gold coin, which is yet another reason for this object not to be silver, which would match with the heraldic medal for Slytherin. Instead, it appears somewhat similar to the highest denomination coin in the wizarding world, the gold galleon. So again, in the Potterverse, cups are aligned with the element of earth and coins with water, not the other way around. As I mentioned in the previous episode, one of the inspirations for the creation of the tarot Trumps, or Triumphs, was Petrarch's E-Triumphi, which means the Triumphs. This was an allegorical procession in the form of a poem in three parts. In each part of this triumphal procession as story, there are two people, one of whom triumphs over the other, and each subsequent pair triumphs over the previous ones. The first two are love and chastity, represented by Cupid and by the love of Petrarch's life, whose name was Laura. However, in the second part, Laura is in turn trumped by death, because she did actually die while death, with a capital D, is trumped in turn by fame, with a capital F. In his book on tarot history and symbolism, Robert M. Place writes, in reference to Petrarch's work, fame allows one's work and reputation to outlive the body, and in this way, defeats death. This philosophy might be the reason that, when Dumbledore is falling out of favor at the Ministry in Order of the Phoenix, Bill Weasley tells Harry, quote, he doesn't care what they do as long as they don't take him off the chocolate frog cards. Perhaps this type of enduring fame is another reason that Dumbledore thinks of death as the next great adventure, while Voldemort has either not considered this, because surely Voldemort's fame will outlive him, or he doesn't feel that it is adequate compensation for his life eventually ending. At the other end of the spectrum is Voldemort, whose tarot archetype here and in much of the series is the fifteenth card, the Devil, which is at the bottom of the first column. The Devil is often shown with servants, male and female, who are enslaved to him, chained up and unable to exercise their will, which is consistent with Voldemort using the Imperius Curse to control people though he also controls other wizards, whether his Death Eaters or not, with threats of violence. This contrasts with Dumbledore interacting respectfully with the teachers who work for him and the other members of the Order of the Phoenix, who are valued for their diversity, not their ability to follow orders, which is what Death Eaters are expected to do. Hogwarts students are equally respected by Dumbledore, who lays down rules but doesn't enforce them quite as stringently as Filch or Umbridge. After all, he gives an invisibility cloak to Harry when he's eleven. At the end of the first book, Quirrell binds Harry with snake-like ropes, snakes being both Slytherin's emblem and a creature traditionally linked to the devil. In contrast, on the first card, the Ouroboros, the image of a snake eating its own tail, is the magician's belt, and this symbol is as morally neutral as an infinity sign. Quirrell calls Voldemort master, which no one calls Dumbledore, even though he is the headmaster. Voldemort has servants, slaves even. Dumbledore has colleagues and comrades, despite his extreme magical prowess. In Jung and Tarot, An Archetypal Journey, Sally Nichols writes about the symbolism of the devil card. According to Jung, any kind of psychic function that is split off from the whole and operates autonomously is devilish. Voldemort aspires to immortality and believes that any price is worth achieving this, even splitting his soul or condemning himself to a cursed half-life by drinking unicorn's blood. No other life is sacred to him, not even a loyal servant's. He murders Snape while still believing him to be loyal, merely because he thinks that this is necessary for him to gain mastery over the Elder Wand. He is, of course, wrong about this, as I talked about in Episode 25, The Wand Game. The Devil card is linked to the element of Earth, and therefore to graveyards and to the Devil's mythic home, Hell. This card is also linked to Capricorn, Tom Riddle's astrological sign, and to ambition, which is a Slytherin characteristic. So at the top of the first column is Dumbledore as the magician, and it might as well be his famous wizard card. At the bottom is Voldemort, epitomized by the devil card. In the middle is card number eight, Justice, an archetype that can be seen as Harry in the first book. The middle row of cards, 8 through 14, is often called the Realm of Equilibrium. It's a bridge between worlds, just as Harry, as an archetypal liminal being, is someone who bridges worlds, as I talked about in Episodes 8 and 9. Harry is innately justice-minded throughout the series. He has an inner voice that knows when something is fair or not. Repeatedly, when he is caught doing something he knows is wrong and he cannot defend his actions, he accepts punishment, especially if he respects the punisher, such as McGonagall. But he also accepts his detentions from Snape with no argument. After cursing Draco in the bathroom in the sixth book, he balks at unfair or extreme punishments, usually from Umbridge, and also does this on others' behalf. This includes Hagrid, Sirius, Buckbeak, and Stan Shunpike. On many justice cards, even ones that aren't numbered 8, which we can also see as a sideways infinity sign, a woman is depicted. She sometimes has wings, sometimes not, but she almost always carries a sword and a set of scales, though in some cases just the scales might appear on the card. The justice card is linked to the element of air, hence the sword, and to the sign of Libra, hence the scales. Libra is also an air sign in the zodiac, just as Capricorn, which is linked to the Devil card, is an earth sign. So we can see the first column of cards presenting in symbolic form a fairly straightforward good and evil struggle, with Harry at the fulcrum of the Seesaw. In the first book of the series, just as in the final book, he has access to great power, the Philosopher's Stone. he doesn't pursue for himself. His goal is to protect others by keeping this power from someone who would abuse it, and the magic that Dumbledore uses to hide the stone in the Mirror of Erised is designed specifically to respond to Harry's selfless protective impulse. I mentioned in the last episode that each card in the Tarot Major Arcana has at least one other card that's linked to it if the numbers on both cards, or on a set of three cards, in some cases, add up to the same number. The cards that are numerically linked to the first column card, the Magician, card number 1, are the Wheel of Fortune, card number 10, and the Sun, card number 19. Symbolism connected to the wheel card is more prominent in the third book when it's the center column card for that book, and the same is true of the sun card in the fifth book, when it's at the bottom of the fifth column. But in the first book, there are faint echoes of the symbolism on both of these cards. A major connection between the first and tenth cards is that each one has symbols that align with the elements of fire, earth, water, and air which are connections to the four Hogwarts houses. On the Magician card, these symbols are the tarot suits of wand, sword, cup, and pentacle, while on the Wheel card we see a composite mythical creature, a sphinx, which is made of an eagle, a man, a lion, and a bull. These are also the symbols connected to the four evangelists, the writers of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which also appear in the corners of card 21, the world, in many tarot decks, pointing again to that card's link to the wholeness that comes from integrating disparate parts. Sometimes, instead of an actual sphinx appearing on the card, an artist might put the individual evangelist's avatars in the corners of the card, but give them wings, just as on the world card. The eagle, of course, already has wings, but then the others become a winged lion, a winged bull, and a winged man, which is a figure that we usually call an angel. Each of the evangelists can also be linked to a Hogwarts house. The Lion of Saint Mark is, of course, linked to Gryffindor. Saint Mark is also the patron saint of the Italian city of Venice, and if you look at a Venetian flag, it depicts a winged lion in red and gold, something very close to the Gryffindor coat of arms. St. John is represented by an eagle, the symbol of Ravenclaw, which is linked to the sky and to the element of air, which in turn is linked to the intellect and to learning. The Gospel of John is often considered to be the most esoteric. It's called the Synoptic Gospel, and was heavily influenced by the Greek philosophy of the Logos, or the Word. Saint Matthew is represented by a man, or an angel, when the man is given wings, and this aligns with a Slytherin house, because another angel linked to a snake, the symbol for Slytherin, is Lucifer, the fallen angel who became Satan, the devil, which is Voldemort's tarot archetype in the first book. The Gospel of Matthew also begins with a genealogy for Jesus, which is likewise seen in Luke, but not the other Gospels and Slytherin, the founder, was very interested in bloodlines. In addition to this, snakes are associated with both poisons and medicines, hence the two entwined snakes on the caduceus, the symbol of the medical profession. And Severus Snape, the Slytherin potions master, creates potions that can kill or cure, reflecting the fact that in ancient Greek, the same word is used for poison and medicine. Finally, St. Luke is represented by a winged bull or ox, creatures usually linked with the earth. The astrological sign of Taurus, the bull, is an earth sign, which in turn links this with Hufflepuff. This house's head is Professor Sprout, the herbology teacher, and the plants she nurtures in the greenhouses are again linked to medicine and the potions that can be made from them, while St. Luke was known to be a physician combination of the symbols of the evangelists on the wheel card, or the symbols for the tarot suits on the magician card, are each collectively a single symbol of wholeness, which is fitting in the book in which Harry first goes to Hogwarts, because this is a major milestone for him, allowing him to learn who he is and where he belongs in the world. And during this journey of self-discovery, he coincidentally also learns that he has inherited a small fortune, as in wheel of. A connection between the first card, the magician, and the 19th card, the sun, is Dumbledore's pet phoenix, fox, since phoenixes are symbolically linked to the sun, which I talked about in episode 14, The Devil's Game. The phoenix is also linked symbolically to death and resurrection, as the sun is also, especially in winter solstice myths from around the world. But just as the symbolism of the Sun card is present in the first book in only a remote, echoing way, Fox is only seen briefly in it. Nonetheless, Harry, a boy with a feather from Fox in his wand, spends three days unconscious in the hospital wing, symbolically dead and then resurrected. The eighth card, Justice, is numerically connected to the Star card, number seventeen, whose digits one and seven add up to eight. However, the connection here to the star card is subtle, if Rowling did indeed intend a connection to be seen. Hagrid tells Minerva McGonagall that Sirius Black lent him the flying motorbike to bring Harry to Surrey. Sirius is the name of the Dog Star, and Sirius Black's link to Justice is in the foreground in the third book, where Justice is a sequential card and the star is a column card. Finally, the card linked to The Devil, number 15, is The Lover's, number 6, which is a sequential card in the second book and at the top of the column for the sixth. The Lover's card is about many things, but mainly choices. An important choice that Harry makes in the first book is connected to its related card, The Devil because he chooses not to be in Slytherin specifically due to what Hagrid says about dark wizards, which is most likely because of Hagrid's personal experience of Tom Riddle. This prompts Dumbledore to tell Harry in the next book, in which the lover's card is even more influential, that choices make us who we are. to the first two column cards the balance and symmetry represented by the magician with its infinity sign and tarot card suits and the justice card with its scales and its number 8 are seen in the structure of the first book which is highly symmetrical each obstacle to the philosopher's stone aligns with a book in the series as i talked about in episodes 10 through 29 But in addition to this, something related to each obstacle is introduced in reverse order in the plot of the first book. The Mirror of Erised is the seventh obstacle to the stone for Quirrell slash Voldemort. But Quirrell slash Voldemort is the final obstacle for Harry to protect the stone. And Quirrell and Voldemort are each mentioned at the beginning of the story in reverse order. We learn very early that Voldemort has killed Harry's parents. Wizards rejoice over the disappearance of you-know-who, and Dumbledore and McGonagall discuss Voldemort killing the Potters, but not being able to kill Harry. Then Harry meets Quirrell at the Leaky Cauldron. In the chamber with the mirror, Harry sees Quirrell, then Voldemort, when Quirrell removes his turban. His two faces, like the god Janus, also point to this book's symmetry which can be linked to the Magician card, and by association to the Wheel and Sun cards, and to the Balanced Scales of Justice. Before Harry encounters Quirrell and Voldemort on the way to the stone, there is the potions riddle, and earlier in the first book, the next significant person who Harry meets is Severus Snape, in the chapter called The Potions Master. Preceding the potions obstacle is the troll that Quirrell knocked out, And sure enough, soon after The Potions Master, Harry, Ron, and Hermione have their troll adventure in the Halloween chapter. The reflection of the fourth obstacle, the giant chess game, is subtle. At the Christmas banquet in the Great Hall, one of the things that Harry receives when he opens a wizarding Christmas cracker is his own wizarding chess set. The reflection of the third obstacle, the flying keys, which Harry has to catch while on a broomstick, is even subtler. Harry has already played one Quidditch match by Christmas, but in that match he doesn't catch the snitch with his hand. He does that for the first time in his second match, played after Christmas against Hufflepuff. Furthermore, since Harry plays a match against Slytherin first and becomes entangled with the snitch that will contain the Resurrection Stone, a ring that's handed down in a family who are Slytherin's ancestors, setting this up to be reflected all the way at the end of the seventh book, and then he plays Hufflepuff, but is out of commission during the match against Ravenclaw, it seems that he doesn't technically play a full Quidditch season in the first book, since he never goes up against Ravenclaw. However, as I talked about in episode 16, The Seeker, In this book, he plays a metaphorical match against Ravenclaw, since the Flying Keys are the obstacle that Professor Flitwick created, and Flitwick is head of Ravenclaw House. The second obstacle, the Devil's Snare, is a reflection of the detention that Harry serves in the Forbidden Forest, a symbolic hell, which is also where Harry sees Quirrell, who is possessed by Voldemort and who embodies the tarot archetype of the Devil. Finally, after the detention in the forest, Harry learns about how to overcome the first obstacle, Fluffy the Three-Headed Dog, when he asks Hagrid about where he got the dragon egg that became Norbert. So one by one, we get elements that appear in reverse order as the obstacles to the Philosopher's Stone, Voldemort slash Quirrell, the Potions Master, a troll, a chess set. Harry catching a snitch with his hand instead of in his mouth, harrowing the metaphorical hell of the forest, and seeing an incarnation of the devil, and Harry learning how to subdue a three-headed hellhound. One by one, Harry gets past each obstacle: Fluffy, Devil's Snare, the Flying Keys, the chess game, the troll, the potions riddle, and Quirrell slash Voldemort. And this symmetry is reflected in the first column of cards in the Tarot Major Arcana the column cards linked to the first book in the series, Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. You've been listening to Quantum Harry the Podcast, a podcast version of the book Quantum Harry, A Unified Theory of the Potterverse by B. L. Purdom. All music heard on Quantum Harry is composed and performed by B. L. Purdom. Whether you are streaming on iTunes, Stitcher, CastBox, or another podcatcher, please leave a rating and or a comment and share episodes of Quantum Harry with your friends. Next time on Quantum Harry, episode 32, The Mirror and the Stone. I'll continue to talk about the cards of the Tarot Major Arcana linked to Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, this time examining the first three sequential cards, the Magician, the High Priestess, and the Empress. I hope you'll join me.